Okay, we're going to be reading in 1 John chapter 5, starting with verse 10. Today's lesson is, um, the, the study is on God's, God's providential preservation of Scripture. And we're going to be doing lesson four, which is how God preserved the New Testament. Last week we talked about the Old Testament. And I really wanted to go into a story about Alexander the Great. And uh, Josephus has a really fantastic section in there. If you ever get a chance, read um, Josephus's account of Alexander the Great and a dream that God gave Alexander before he started his conquest of all of the known, you know, known world. At that time, he was given a dream and a vision of him approaching Jerusalem. And, uh, well, he didn't know it was Jerusalem at the time. Um, but he was going to go out and destroy Jerusalem because they had sided with the, with the prince of Persia or the, the, the king of Persia and had not supplied his troops like he should have. And so he was about to wipe out Jerusalem. But then as he started to see the high priests come out and the priests with their white robes and the, all, the, all of the leaders of Jerusalem came out to bow before Alexander the Great because they knew they were in trouble, he recognized that this was the vision he had, had, had been given. And instead of having them tortured to death, um, he uh, worshipped God with them. Uh, so it was just a, it's a fantastic story about, again, how God in his providence uh, preserves his people, preserves the scriptures uh, from being destroyed. Let's read 1 John chapter 5, verse 10 to 13. <clears throat> he that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself he that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Let's uh, open up with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you that we do not have to come to the scriptures <clears throat> with everything, uh, the wisdom of the world, and the scientific knowledge of textual criticism or something like that, to find and discern your word, but we have the Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth, helps us to recognize the truth of the scriptures as they are, which are your very words. We thank you, Lord, for preserving them for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, uh, the New Testament. <clears throat> was written entire, entirely in Koine Greek. Alexander the Great, which I was talking about, had unified the known world under the Greek language through, the uh, through his conquest in the 4th century B.C. So four, roughly 400 years before the time of Christ, Greek had spread through the entire world. 
And um, it was like the, the, the language of commerce. It was the language of, uh, um, the, uh, of rulers and kings. Um, and it had become dominant during that time. Um, Koine Greek is also known as Common Attic, Hellenistic or Biblical Greek. <clears throat> if you know where, what um, Attica is, Greece is another word for Greece. Um, it was spoken throughout the Hellenistic period as well as part of the Rome, Rome and throughout the Byzantine Empire. <clears throat> Papyrus was made by pressing woven sheets of reed over time. Papyrus was common in Alexandria of Egypt. And I've got a, a, a bookmark made out of papyrus, and I'm going to go ahead and pass. This is what papyrus looks like. It's not woven. Um, it's actually um, just a whole bunch of, of papyrus. And I was thinking about making some, trying to make some out of the um, palm of the palms that we have. Um, the, the shaft is a good good fiber for uh, papyrus. And it's very similar to the papyrus plant that, um, that was used to make papyrus. Uh, but I've not gotten to that project. <laughs> um, but I'll go ahead and, and pass this around. When it gets to the back, if you could cross it over and then um, and bring it to the front. I mean, find its way through the front so you can kind of examine that. You can see it's a little bit flexible, um, it, and it's, uh, it lasts for a long time. Uh, they would press it, uh, and then they would dry it. Um, uh, I, you can look on the, on the Internet, on YouTube, and people have instructional videos on how to make papyrus. Um, so uh, <clears throat> parchments, also known as vellum, are prepared animal skins from cattle, sheep, and goats, for the purpose of writing. Um, the word parchment comes from the name of a city in Asia Minor called Pergamus. Um, that's Latin per Pergamum and, the, and, uh, and French uh, per parchment, which, are, uh, which was a thriving center for the production of vellum during the New Testament times. Um, 2 Timothy 4.13, Paul says, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. <clears throat> and then Revelation 2.12 says, uh, John wrote a, a letter to Pergamum. He's, he wrote, uh, and to the angel of the church in Pergamus, uh, not Pergamum, Pergamus, uh, write this. And so it was, a, as it was a city in Asia Minor. And um, when Paul said, uh, bring, the, bring the books, it's not really books, it's, uh, it's scrolls. Um, a scroll is a scroll of, parch of uh, papyrus, basically. And a scroll, uh, they've been known to be 133, 133 feet long. Um, that's one of the largest ones that they found. Uh, but on average, they're about 35 feet long. And so when Paul said to, um, to was it Titus? Yeah, no, Timothy, bring the cloak and, um, and the books, that's the scrolls of papyra, and the parchments, that's the animal skins, um, 
we're talking about the materials that he was using to construct um, the New Testament uh, and the original uh, autographs, which is uh, fascinating. Um, even as early as the second century A.D., Christians began to adopt innovative technology to preserve God's word. They constructed codices um, made up of choirs or of parchment or papyrus sewn together. Uh, so you have books uh, being made and invented um, during the second century. New Testament writers would write using a stylus with no ink um, in the stylus itself. And they would uh, take the stylus, had to be dipped in ink after every few letters. Um, so it was not, not as easy to write back then as it was uh, as it is today. Um, paper, paper is used in China between 25 AD and 220 uh, during one of the um, dynasties. Uh, however, it does not reach Europe until the 11th century. The 11th century. So uh, paper doesn't, what we use today for, for paper, um, uh, even the rough um, version of that happens much, much later. And so you see animal skins. The, the Bible is being written on animal skins and papyra um, for uh, a, large, a large chunk of time. So that's just a little bit about the, about the construction and the writing materials that they used during, um, during the New Testament period. Um, all, now we're going to move on to God's preservation of scriptures. All our lives, all of our lives, we are in constant state of warfare. Ephesians 6.12 tells us, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. From the very beginning, God's word has been the target of Satan's attack, attacks. He has used everything at his disposal to stamp out God's word, including persecutions, heresies, and the flames. Calvin in the Institutes, Book 1, Chapter 8, Section 10, says this within his discussion of the destruction of the temple of, uh, of, by Antiochus during the history of the Maccabeans. Antiochus had ordered all the books of, of Scripture to be burned. This is Calvin. Let us rather attend to the care which the Lord took to preserve his word when against all hope he rescued it from the truculence of a, of a most cruel tyrant as from the midst of the flames, inspiring pious priests and others with such constancy that they hesitated not, though it should have been purchased at the expense of their lives, to transmit this treasure to posterity and defeating the keenest search of prefects and their satellites who does not recognize it as a signal and miraculous work of God that those sacred monuments which the ungodly persuaded themselves had utterly perished immediately returned to resume their former rights and indeed in greater honor. For the Greek translation appeared to disseminate them over the whole world. That's the uh, Septuagint um, of the Old Testament. Nor does it seem so wonderful that God rescued the tables of his covenant from the sanguinary edicts of Antiochus as that they remained safe and entire amid the manifold disasters 
by which the Jewish nation was occasionally crushed, devastated, and almost exterminated. I thought that was a good quote um, in, in the Institutes by Calvin on the providence of God in preserving the scriptures. Um, then what we see in the New Testament is that soon after they are written down, the, the, the books of the New Testament are written down by the apostles. We see in att- attempts um, at, at canonizing these passages, uh, these books and letters that Paul um, and the apostles and, uh, had written. Uh, Peter established Paul's writings as scripture in 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16. In A.D. 170, Tatian made his Harmony of the Gospels, which include, included all the, only the four Gospels. So the four Gospels were compiled before 170 A.D., um, already at that point, they were harmonizing them and showing how, you know, make, writing them down in a way that they followed the, uh, the history of, of what happened uh, during Christ's ministry. Um, Tert- Tertullian, uh, who lived from 155 to 220, this is not, this, this is like a generation after Christ was the first to apply the phrase New Testament to the apostolic writings. Um, He writes the following in his prescriptions against heretics in which he encountered the teachings of Gnosticism. He says this, Come now, if you are ready to exercise your curiosity better in the business of your own salvation, run through the apostolic churches where the very thrones of the apostles preside to this day over their districts, where the authentic letters of the apostles are still recited, bringing the voice and face of each one of them to mind. If Achaia is nearest to you, you have Corinth. If you are not far from Macedonia, you have Philippi and Thessalonica. If you can go to Asia, you have Ephesus. If you are close to Italy, you have Rome, the nearest authority for us also. So what does that tell us about the original autographs during Tertullian's time? What does that tell us? For the epistles and the, and the churches they were originally written to? Yes, they were still being kept. And they were considered an authority, weren't they? So the originals were in existence during the time of Tertullian, 155 to 220 A.D. Okay, and if you had a a conflict, uh, uh, they were they were being used exactly as the Westminster Confession says that they should be used to settle all matters. <laughs> you know, and he's basically saying, "Look, you Gnostic, you Gnostics, if you need to." If you need to settle this matter, go to this city and read the very words of Paul. You know, read the very words of John, you know, that he wrote to, uh, to, uh, to the cities in, in Asia Minor. <clears throat> How were they being treated during that time? They were called the thrones of the apostles. They were being treated with reverence during that time. The original um, autographs were considered holy 
Um, by the fourth century, uh, church fathers such as Athanasius, Augustine, and Jerome began to make canonical lists, which included Second and Third John, Second Peter, Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation. Um, many false gospels uh, and spurious works were rejected during this time. And I could go on a list of all some of the false gospels that were rejected. Um, so it, um, it kind of disturbs me because I, I, I remember in, when I was going to college um, at Iowa State, I never took a, a religion course, but I remember a lot of my Christian friends did because they thought it was an easy, uh, you know, elective kind of thing to fill, get up their get their electives. But um, they were talking the 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 professors at that time would say, "Look, this whole concept of a canon came hundreds and hundreds of years later, like four hundred whatever, A.D., and it was just a bunch of old guys that got together during a, um, uh, during a council, a church council, and they decided what goes in the Bible and what doesn't. Um, and, and what you begin to, it, it, that, that concept reflects a complete ignorance of Christian history, okay? Because what we're seeing here is that the scriptures were recognized immediately for what they were. They were divine inspiration. And it was only when they were attacked that they, dis- that they felt the need to make lists, um, a canonical list. Uh, so this whole concept of a canon, that like, as if it didn't exist until like 400 AD or something like, a, like that, it's totally ridiculous. The canon existed and was recognized. Not only was it recognized by, this, by the churches, it was used in worship by the churches. So you have lectionaries, for example. What's a lectionary? Um, I think I have it in the... uh, uh, A book containing a collection of the New Testament scripture readings for the purpose of reading during worship on a particular day or occasion. These began to appear as early as the 6th century. Um, uh, So you can see the scriptures being incorporated into... Uh, into the churches, I guess uh, the New Testament uh, early first century Christians would have just read the scriptures during worship, but a, a lectionary was a later development that actually made it as a part of the calendar. Um, so on this day, you know, kind of like the um, uh, uh, Lutherans um, have uh, have much more of a, a calendar, a church calendar that they have scripture readings on. <clears throat> So um, <clears throat> uh, Paul was was uh, the apostle Paul was jealous. Uh, we see imposters and persecution and heresy uh, attacking the church. Paul was had his jealous rivals, Second uh, Corinthians eleven five, by which he had to authenticate his writings with his own handwriting. Um, why do you think he did that? It was because um, there were imposters, right? Um, that were they were saying they were from Paul. Um, John constantly battled early Gnosticism and den- that denied the humanity of Christ. Um, we have many many persecutions during this time. We have the persecution of, under Nero in 64 to 68 A.D. 
<clears throat> Domitian, um, 90 to 96. Uh, I'll just keep on reading without the dates. Trajan, Marcus Aurelius. These are these are like Roman emperors that did and rulers and kings that did uh, regional persecutions of Christians to try and wipe them out. <clears throat> Marcus Aurelius, Septimus Severus, um, uh, Decius Valerian, uh, Maximus the Trashian, Trashian uh, Aurelian, I'm probably butchering these names, I apologize. And then lastly, from 303 to 324, we have one of the most severe persecutions which is the Diocletian and Galerius persecution of church. Um, let me read to you um, uh, a section of Eusebius um, on this persecution and what happened uh, during this time uh, to the actual, what happened during this time to the actual autographs of the Bible, according to Eusebius. Um, page. No, I'm not, I'm not going to read that quite yet. <clears throat> I wanted to do a brief, um, because we're, before that time, before the, the, the persecution of uh, Diocletian, I want to tell you a little, little small story about, um, uh, I've got a map here that I drew. <clears throat> of the Mediterranean. And we'll be talking about this throughout uh, the lesson today. <clears throat> there was a little region up here in North Italy. Um, and there were a people there uh, called the Vaudois um, nation. I, I'm I looked up how to pronounce that in Italian, so I don't know if that's how they... The Vaudois. Um, did you know that there was a Latin Bible before Jerome's Vulgate? Uh, Jerome's Vulgate was in 382. But um, it's called the Italic Church. Italy comes from the word Italy. The Italic Church in northern Italy were pre predecessors to, to the Waldenses. Their Bible was the family of the renowned Itala. It was that translation into Latin which represents the received text or the traditional text. <clears throat> its very name, Italia, is derived from the Italic district, the regions of the Vaudue. Of the purity and the reliability of this version, Augustine, speaking of different Latin Bibles, says and this was in 400 AD. Now, among translations themselves, the Italian is to be preferred to the others, for it keeps closer to the words without prejudice to clearness of expression. <clears throat> the reformers held that the Waldensian church was formed in 120 AD. That's what the reformers believed, that, that this church goes back that far. <clears throat> From which date on, they passed down from father to son, the teachings they received from the apostles. The Latin Bible, the Italic, was translated from the Greek no later than 157 AD, according to Scrivener's Introduction, Volume 2, page 43. <clears throat> 
We are indebted to Theodore Beza, the renowned associate of John Calvin, for the statement that the Italic Church dates from 120 AD. From the illustrious group of scholars which gathered around Beza, 1590 AD, we may understand how the received text was the bound, was the bond of union between the great historic churches. So I, I mention this story <clears throat> because I want you to see <clears throat> that that there was great missionary zeal from Antioch even to take their Bibles all the way over here to North Italy and to and to spread God's word. Um, throughout the, the Mediterranean area. <clears throat> Persecution of the Vaudoua Church began with Pope Gregory I. According to um, De Sanctis, a Catholic official at Rome and, and convert to Protestantism, remarks about this converse, uh, his conversation with the Waldensian scholars that showed him the ruins of two great Palatine libraries once stood one Greek and the other Latin, which precious manuscripts were collected. However, they had been destroyed by Pope Gregory. So from 120 AD all the way up to Gregory I, which I think is 4th century, um, uh, maybe 5th century, you have up here great libraries to house both the Greek and the Latin. So the Vaudoua Church was very serious about preserving their scriptures, um, having entire structures uh, built um, and libraries built to house these um, manuscripts. Uh, the Waldensian movement started in 1173, was, uh, was characterized by preaching, poverty, and strict adherence to the Bible. They were excommunicated in 1184 and denounced as heretics. Well, why was that? Well, they, because they had a Bible. <laughs> Um, they were denounced as heretics because they had a Bible. Yeah, John. Did I, if, I, if you don't mind if I rewind a second, did you say Pope Gregory destroyed those libraries? Yes. Wow. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> Persecution of any, you know, because it wasn't the Latin Vulgate. Um, in 1532, the Waldensians joined the Reformation and its beliefs. The Swiss and French Reformed churches sent Pharaoh to meet with them and as and was instrumental in their joining the Reformation. So during the Reformation, the Waldensian became a part of the Reformation. Further persecutions broke out against the Waldensians in 1545, the massacre of Marindal, and 1655, the Piedmont Easter Massacre. Uh, if you look these up, th- these are horrible, horrible massacres. Um, extreme tortures that, uh, of what they did to people that were because they were not Catholic. Um, uh, further, um, Giovanni Diodati was born in Geneva in 1576. He pre- succeeded Beza as professor of theology in Geneva and translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Italian. This Italian Bible was adopted by the Waldensians and Legger, a student of Diodati, uh, returned to northern Italy as a pastor of the Waldensians and he led them in their flight from the Piedmont Easter Massacre of 1655. Um, and so the church uh, fled out of, out of the... These are, these are highly mountainous regions, and so they're kind of like a backwoods people in the valleys, in the valleys of northern Italy. Um, uh, but they would 
they would um, you can see Satan constantly wanting to, to stomp out the scriptures constantly trying to stomp out Christianity um, uh, by these persecutions okay so that's just a little side note on the Vaudouet, uh, uh northern Italy let's go back to the Diocletian persecution and see what Satan is trying to do with the original manuscripts <clears throat> so I'm going to read uh, page 290 of Eusebius um, this is a, a, a fantastic a newer translation by a Lutheran this was given to me by my, my, um, my mother-in-law who's a, a Missouri Synod Lutheran it's a Lutheran scholar who had writ, uh, done the translation work on this um, all this was fulfilled in my time when I saw with my own eyes the houses of worship demolished to their foundations the inspired and sacred scriptures committed to flames in the middle of the public squares and the pastors of the churches hiding shamefully in one place or another or arrested and held up to ridicule by their enemies but I will neither describe their wretched misfortunes nor record their quarrels and inhumanity to each other prior to the persecution only enough to justify the divine judgment I will say nothing even about those who made utter shipwreck of their salvation in the persecution of their own free will hurled themselves into the depths of the sea. Instead, I shall include in my history only those from which first we ourselves and then later generations may benefit. We proceed to de- then to describe briefly the sacred ordeals of the martyrs of the divine word. And then he goes on and explains horrible tortures. Um, that the church leaders at that time endured, uh, often being flayed alive or gradually uh, and then gradually roasted uh, one limb at a time. Um, just, just horrible ordeals that they endured. Uh, many people survived their tortures uh, with li- missing limbs um, and things like that, um, and, uh, or, or being blind, having their eyes gouged out, and just dif- different horrible things that had been done during the Diocletian era. And so we see what what happened to the original manuscripts during that time. They were taken to the town square and publicly burned. Why was Diocletian, why was Satan doing this? He was doing this to steal God's word from us. But God preserved it. So, uh, the original manuscripts were destroyed. And then the church rises back to power, which is interesting. Satan finally gives up, because the more he persecutes the church, the more it spreads um, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, And in 313, we have the Edict of Milan, made by Emperor Constantine I, he grants religious liberty to the Christians and their religion and other religions. So what does Satan use? What is his tactic? What does he change to? He changes to heresy, <clears throat> false teaching. He says, okay, I can't, I can't even burn their scriptures. I can't even torture their church leaders to death with, and stop them out. What am I going to do? I'm going to subtly attack the word of God through heresy. <clears throat> 
So Arius um, is a, a, he's a man 256 to 336 AD, a Syrian or Eastern Libya presbyter. So that's, that's Eastern Libya is like right around here. Um, <clears throat> He's an ascetic and a pre... Asceticism was rampant during that time. Even some of the good guys are ascetics. <laughs> um, uh, um, and priest who... Uh, he argued, if the father begat the son, he that was begotten had a beginning of existence. And from this, it is evident that there was a time when the son was not. So what is he saying? He's basically saying, um, if you ever have a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon come to your door they, they're saying the same thing and all you, can have, all you have to do is say hey, I'm not an Aryan <laughs> this has been settled <laughs> um, uh, thousands of years ago um, uh, read your Bibles uh, read <laughs> no, 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 don't read your Bibles yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> read the traditional text um, uh, so he, subordination, subordinationism was very common in the Alexandrian Christology. Athanasius of Alexandria, um, again from the same area, Athanasius, our hero. Remember, we've heard, we've, we all know who Athanasius is, don't we? He's the guy who fought the fight against Arianism. Uh, he was a deacon and assistant of Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, later became the Bishop of Alexandria himself. So there was a guy named Alexander who was Bishop of Alexandria. <laughs> Popular name back then. And, and he was preaching, and Arius didn't like what he was saying because he was preaching and saying that Christ was co-equal with the Father. And so, so Arius said, no, 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 wait. And he gave this argument, if, if you know, the father begot the son, then there's got to be a time when the son was not. You know, and this, this whole Arian controversy started to boil over. And Athanasius was on the other side. He was, he was a deacon at the time to the bishop that was preaching this, that, that Christ and, or that, that the, the Logos and the father were co-equal. And, uh, and so the, you can see that uh, Athanasius began his ministry of of uh, countering um, Arianism. And um, the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, um, which the councils were in Constantinople here, um, Nice. Uh, well, they were not in Const- near, near there. I think it was, I should have looked up where Nicaea was, uh, is, I'm not even sure where that's, that's at, but um, in 325 AD, it was an ecumen. My, my, what I'm trying to say is, it was an ecumenical council. Um, it formed, uh, uh, formed most of what we recite today in the Nicene Creed. You know, the Nicene Creed is what is in the front flap of our um, blue hymnals up, uh, up in the worship sanctuary. Um, this, the second ecumenical council in 381 produced the final wording minus the anathemas at the end against Arianism. So the first council had a shortened version of what we have in the, in the Nicene Creed plus some anathemas against Arianism. And then in 381, they, they lengthened part of it that they had to do with the Holy Spirit and the Son. And, um, and that's what we have in the reading uh, today. So all settled, right? 
I just you know the the old the, this this kind of cropped up and then you know the Council of Nicaea just settled it right three twenty five. Guess how many times after three twenty five, Athanasius was exiled. Can anybody guess? Five times. <laughs> he was exiled for heresy. 336, 338, 356, 363, and 366. All the way up. Um, he, I mean, this man died when uh, he was in, in around 373. So almost to, up to the time of his death, he was constantly being exiled for heresy. Had the matter been settled by Nicaea? No. No, Arianism ruled for periods of time, and then Trinitarianism ruled for a while, and it was struggling, and there was there was this heresy that um, that continued to to grow and and uh, and assert power. Um, great was the spiritual warfare that was going on for Christendom during this time. Um, but Athanasius um, eventually. The, the teaching of the scripture is ruled out. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about why this came up. Um, that I think will help. This book? And I think I'm going to stop here after I read these and kind of go into this a little bit and continue on. Uh, this I've got a lot, lot to cover here. So this will be a two a two-part lesson here. Um, I I uh, took a class um, on hermeneutics, and one of the books in seminary, and one of the books that I had was uh, had been given was by Louis Burkhoff. Louis Burkhoff, the theologian from Cal, uh, Calvin Seminary, uh, uh, CRC, um, Christian Reformed. Uh, theologian, very very good. We we all know about Burkhoff's systematic theology. So the blue, um, well, mine's blue, uh, big thick systematic theology. Um, <clears throat> but he does a great job. As you know, if you've read his systematic theology, he, he has a rich amount of history at the beginning of each section. It's really good. Um, he is a very fantastic historian. Um, but uh, one of the things that he did in this class that I took on hermeneutics was he analyzed the hermeneutical principles that the early church used when they interpreted scripture. So I'm going to read. um, First you have the, he talks about the school of Alexandria right here. Okay, this is Alexandria. And remember, this is a great a center of learning because of the of what the library of Alexander, the great library of Alexander, where a lot of the uh, the Hellenistic writings the, um, they would they would collect books from all over, um, and it was the world's it was like the world's academic center. Think of the library of Alexandria, the school of Alexandria. At the beginning of the 3rd century A.D., biblical interpretation was influenced especially by the catechical school of Alexandria. This city was an important seat of learning where Jewish religion and Greek philosophy met and influenced each other. 
the Platonic philosophy, Plato, as a Greek philosopher, <clears throat> was still current there in the forms of Neoplatonism and Gnosticism. And it is no wonder that the famous catechiacal school of this city came under the spell of the popular philosophy <clears throat> and accommodated itself to it in its interpretation of the Bible. What does Gnosticism teach? That the, that the flesh is evil and the spirit is good. And they had this concept, the, the Greek philosophers of, you know, God. And then you have the gnosis, which is part material. And uh, I'm getting this from 30, 35, 40-year-old knowledge in my brain from my Greek history class from Iowa State, with my professor, um, Achilles Avramides. He's a great professor of, of uh, Greek history. <clears throat> so... Take it with a grain of salt. But I do remember him talking about Gnosticism and the Gnosis and it come proceeding from God and, and this kind of whole, whole stuff. And you see the syncretism of that philosophy with Christianity. <clears throat> because what? John used the word, what? Logos. It's a very philosophical-laden term at that time. <clears throat> Um, and it, it is no wonder that the famous catechical school of this city came under the spell <clears throat> of the popular philosophy and accommodated itself to it in its interpretation of the Bible. It found the natural method of harmonizing religion and philosophy at hand in the allegorical interpretation. <clears throat> For A, pagan philosophers, Stoics, had already for a long time applied that method in the interpretation of Homer and by pointing out the way, and thereby pointing, pointed out the way. And Philo, who was also an Alexandrian, lent to this method the weight of his authority, reduced it to a system, and applied it even to the simplest narratives. <clears throat> Philo was an early church uh, uh, father. Um, but what did he do? He used Greek philosophy. <clears throat> and what was Greek philosophy all about? <clears throat> what was the school of Alexandria all about? It was about allegorizing everything. Because if you allegorize stuff enough, <clears throat> you can make it all sound the same. <laughs> and it can all just be this like wonderful world re religion uh, or uh, philosophy that helps you in life. <clears throat> you can you can like borrow a little bit from the Jews, and you borrow a little bit from uh, the Plato and and that kind of thing. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In our day. So that was Alexandria and their school. Now let me tell you a little bit about. I, I just have a few more minutes here. The next school that he covers which is Antioch. The school of Antioch. The school of Antioch was probably founded by Dorotheus and Lucius, Lucius toward the end of the 3rd century, though Ferrar regards uh, Diodorus, first presbyter of Antioch and after um, 378 AD, bishop of Tarsus, as the real founder of the school. 
the later wrote a treatise on the principles of interpretation. They wrote treaties on how to interpret the Bible. Okay, so that's how we know what how the, uh, their method. The later, uh, but this greatest, but his greatest monument consisted of his two illustrious disciples, Theodore of Mopsuestia and John Chrysostom. These two men differed greatly in every respect, but Theodore held rather liberal views respecting the Bible, while John regarded it as being in every part the infallible word of God. The exegesis of the former was intellectual and dogmatic, and of the later more spiritual and practical. The one was famous as a critic and interpreter, the other, though an exegete of no mean ability, eclipsed all his contemporaries as a pulpit orator. Hence Theodore was styled the exegete, while John was called Chrysostom, the golden mouth. That's what the word Chrysostom means. For the splendor and of his eloquence, they went for far towards the development of true scientific exegesis, recognizing as they did the necessity of determining the what? The original sense of the Bible in order to make it a profitable, a, a profitable use of it. Not only did they attach great value to the literal sense of the Bible, but they con- consciously rejected the allegorical method of interpretation. You hear what that's happening? What, what, what method do we use in our church today? The Antioch School. What do we regard scripture as? History. Uh, in air, uh, uh, um, authoritative truth. Um, and so we'll get more into who, what happened to the, the Bible in Antioch, and we'll we'll talk about a, a critical juncture here in God's preservation of Scripture. But let's go ahead and close there with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your truth of the Scriptures. We thank you uh, for the privilege of coming to a church that holds the Scriptures in reverence as um, uh, authoritative, infallible Word of God. We look forward, Lord, to having it preached to us like John Christostom preached in Antioch thousands of years ago. We look forward to hearing from you this morning. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word uh, through John Sharp's ministry today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.